I was tired of Stanford. We've been getting together too long. Like a worn out recording of a Jeff Jarrett song. So while Vince lay there sleeping, I read the Observer in bed. And in the personal columns, there was a bullet I read. If you hate her, Rakaran is. And listening to Mike today. If you're not into Hogan. And you hate Bobby the Brain. If you like Booker T at midnight. And squashing cruises like grapes. Then I got the job that you're looking for. Right to Ted and escape. Didn't think about my ratings. I don't even know what they mean. But me and my old ratings had fallen into that same old dull routine. So I wrote to the Observer, dedicated it to Ted. Though I'm no Lanny Poffo, I'll suck my in bed. Yes, I ate her, Rakaran is. I fucking hate Mike Tenay. I created Gangrel's Brood and pushed Stefan Shane. I gotta meet you by tomorrow noon to cut through Patterson's red tape at this place called the Garden where I'll plan my escape. So I waited with high hopes as Ted walked into place. I knew that stash in an instant I knew the fat on his face. I said, Ted, this is kind of shady. He said, I want a coup. Then we laughed for a moment. And I said, I never knew that you ate her is and that prick Mike today. You want to give me a promotion and then sell the company to Shane? Yeah, I'll push Booker T at midnight. And then I'll bury Dallas Page. I'm the rioter you're looking for. To make sure WCW dies. Because WCW must die. North-South Connection Podcast Conglomerate. Welcome to episode 13 of WCW must die my name is johnny c and as always thanks for joining me i'll be your host for the festivities so this is episode 13 huh so i guess i would assume this could be our unluckiest episode but considering that we're talking about wcw in the year 2000 and it's an episode of thunder which we all know is batshit crazy I'm going to look on the bright side and think that since it's our 13th episode, the boys and gals over in Turner Town are going to produce some terrific thunder to tantalize and tumultuate our tenacities. That's a lot of T's, and it doesn't even make sense, but it's WCW must die, so what did you expect? Now, in case you weren't around for episode 12, you bad boy, what were you thinking? Let's bring you up to speed. Pretty much the biggest shot fired in the ongoing conflict between 
Hold on, I kind of, I, I just decided I want to do this like a reporter. Hello, this is Johnny C, your Billionaires Club New Blood War correspondent here with a breaking news update. It's official. The most recent conflict has ended. Ric Flair has become 15 times the world heavyweight champion by defeating Jeff Jarrett with a small package in the center of the ring. Who would have thought an innocent wrestling move would have contributed to a title change on a Vince Russo-produced show? Let's go to Vince Russo now for a creative update. Mr. Russo, what led you to decide to want to end the match with a small package? Well, you know, these are two talented guys in there, and I wanted to sort of take the audience by surprise. It's a blood feud. It's a death feud. You've got Ric Flair. He's obviously unhinged because the Vince Russo and David Flair characters uh, gave him a really hard time earlier by exposing what a bad parent he has been to David throughout his entire life. So the audience, you know, is expecting a bloodbath, perhaps a match that's going to end, you know, with a decapitation or maybe uh, some anal penetration. So what better than a small package? Cinch it up! One, two, three. Well, you know, that's how we tell stories in New York, and so that's the kind of story I wanted to tell here in WCW. Now get out of my face, reporter guy! Thank you very much, Vince Russo. I don't mind telling you. Let's get back to the actual podcast. Thanks, CNN war correspondent Johnny C., for keeping us up to date on what's happening in the ongoing conflict between the New Blood and the Millionaire's Club. But tonight... A new battle must begin. It's in Lafayette, Louisiana, at the Cajun Dome, which sounds like an arena that should have never been booked for a show of this magnitude. It's May 17th in the year 2000. We start off with a recap of Nitro that focuses mostly on the storylines between Sting and Vampiro, Flair, Russo, and winning the title belt for the 15th time, and the return of the Goldberg truck. Seriously, he gets a lot of playtime. We cut right to the opening of Thursday, or excuse me, Wednesday Night Thunder, and I can report back, it's still the longest intro to a professional wrestling program in history. (laughs) We're in a parking lot, (laughs) and the new blood is arriving on a school bus, (laughs) where the number of the school bus has been, like, crossed out and spray-painted in red NB. So it's like, you know, school bus 19's been taken. Oh my god, School Bus 19 is now the New Blood Bus. And this is a hilarious contrast to the Millionaires Clubs like Randy Orton, fallacious bus that they always arrive on, that Lex Luger seems to be always driving, the uh, Lex Express Volume 2. It's a tremendous contrast, and it's, I don't know, like, who's coming up with this shit, but it's almost too sharp to be Vince Russo, so I don't know. All the usual dumbasses are present, except for the most important members of the uh, New Blood. The Filthy Animals are the last to get off, and I noticed that the franchise has a clipboard, and he's, like, taking fucking attendance. Conan tells the franchise that the people in charge never respect the Filthy Animals, so why don't you shove it up your ass and go play with yourself? You know, because Conan cannot have a conversation without a sexual innuendo-related insult. Or... A Siri, for short. <laughs> oh, fuck, how do you like that, Apple? <laughs> ah. So, Conan pushes franchise, and the wimpiest fight in the history of our sport breaks out. To the fact that Tony Schiavone, to sell this to the viewers, goes, Look, there's some pushing and shoving going on! <laughs> then the Mainers Club and their allies arrive, complete with, like, West Side Story. 
choreography. It's like dun 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 because they arrive one at a time, and as they step into the frame, they take like a wild punch swing, and they do like a one step forward, like ole! Hey! I swear to God, they do it. It's like Booker T runs in, plants the foot, wild punch, hey! Like it's. It's so over-choreographed, it's like they're on stage and playing to the back of the audience. I am fucking having a conniption fit watching this. It's an even more pathetic brawl than when the Avengers assembled back before Boot Bowl, because that was a pathetic brawl where, like, you could see the people in the background doing nothing, like their animated background characters in Street Fighter 2. It's like, Hadouken! Hadouken! And the girl in the back still raised her hand like, Hadouken! That girl's still just raising her hand up and down. Um, if you look closely at the background, you can see Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea wa- wandering around without anyone to punch. I don't think he's actually hit anyone. It's at this point that the perfect one, Sean Stasiak, wanders into the frame and taps DDP on the shoulder like he's asking him to dance at, at, a, at a fucking junior high dance, you know? It's like, I believe I can fly, is playing in the background. And the song's about to end, and Stasiak finally works up the courage like, Oh, excuse me, Mr. Page. Would you like to dance? And so DDP just walks away because the song's over. And then he walks up to Hogan. And it's like, dude, if DDP wouldn't fucking play fight with you, do you think Hulk Hogan is going to do it? And Hogan just acts like he's not even there. The new blood scatter, like the cockroaches that they are, and Hogan finds a black fanny pack on the, on the floor of the parking lot. And he opens it, it's got a set of keys inside. And he, 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 is, he gets really fucking excited with these keys and starts dangling them in front of his face like he's a goddamn cat. And he's like, guys, I got it, let's go! And it's like, so, was this a predetermined Millionaire's Club offensive uh, to acquire these keys that benefited from the New Blood disagreement? Or was this happenstance? Like, I don't know. But the fact that it zooms in on Hogan and he says, guys, I got it, it implying that it's something that they've discussed before so the group at large would know what it represents. So this was from predetermined assault. What do the keys represent? What doors will they open? We head to the arena and the announcers do a talking spot. Bobby the Brain Heenan looks like he just got done with a day at Jurassic Park. It is stupendous. They say Flair's 15th title came with a cost, and that's the loss of his son. Eric Bischoff and Vince Russo are at a business meeting, so the franchise was left in charge. Here comes the Millionaire's Club, and they've got the keys for our opening promo. Oh, let me tell you something, new buds. We just took the keys to your bus, boys, and now we're taking the keys to this house. They're taking over. It's what fucking Danae says in response to that dynamite Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea uh, soundbite I delivered to you. The franchise can throw away his format, because tonight, the Millionaire's Club is booking the show, dude. Uh, Private Stash has on a tank top that just says Coast Guard on it. I think this is fucking hilarious, because he's clearly, like, the least valuable member of the MIA. And no offense to those who protect and serve. But I got to feel like if you're looking at the hierarchy of the United States Military Defense Initiative, the Coast Guards may be like your least uh, glamorized. Well, at least before. No, because even Space Force had its own fucking TV show. So 
I'm thinking Coast Guard maybe at the bottom. Uh, I'll do some research later because even Rihanna and Alexander Skarsgård, who can't make a box office movie success, a uh, movie successful at the box office, fucking to save his life, uh, had a, the movie Battleship. So the Navy's got one up as well. Coast Guard, I'm sorry. The New Blood arrives, and the franchise disagrees with what Hogan has to say. And he calls him Terry a lot, because he's shooting, dude. Because he's, ha <laughs> the franchise. In a spot of irony, Conan is behind the franchise, uh, supporting him the entire time he's on the stick. Uh, and they were the ones that started the fucking fight. I love it. It's brilliant. Hogan yells at Billy Kidman. He tells him he's going to kill him at the Great American Bash. If you got the guts, dude. But here's the caveat. If I win, I get the title shot at the Bash at the Beach. Billy Kidman accepts and says that the title is what it takes to get you in the ring. I accept because we all know you're a mark for yourself. It's a done deal, says Tanay. <laughs> Hogan then says, by the way, whore ass. Tonight, little nephew gets his ass beat by big uncle. So he's either telling... Horace, that they booked a confrontation in the ring this evening that will be settled with a pinfall, submission, counter, or disqualification. Or he's telling him the most recent item in his search history on U-Porn. I will let the audience decide. Hold on, stop this madness, you Jurassic slap asses. Jeff Jarrett has arrived. That's the ex-champion. <laughs> says today. He wants Flair. He doesn't have to wait long because Flair's right behind him with the title, and he's wearing his finest Tommy Bahama shirt, and he gets in a weak-ass belt shot on the Chosen One. Another battle erupts, just like we saw at the beginning of the program! Says <laughs> fucking Mike today. Eventually, they all lose interest, and they legitimately start filing out single file from the one entrance curtain to the back of the arena. And Shivani says, Let's go to the backstage area! Right now! And we cut to commercial! I told you it was going to be a lucky episode. That's a hell of a first segment. Now, I suppose I will give Tony Schiavone a little bit of his credibility back, because when we do come back from that commercial break that, thank God, was only instantaneous due to the power of the cock, uh, the new blood is all in the back in their little media area, and K-Dog's like, who called this meeting? And everybody's like, well, the franchise did. And so now, apparently, K-Dog's back to being mad at the franchise, because he says he's a J-Brone, and he knows exactly what he is for Bischoff and Rousseau. Puppet! We'll find their place in line. We'll tie a string around your finger, boo, for just a matter of time. Because you've got to remember -da 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 -da. the lyrics when you sing the song on your cast. Do -do 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 -do. Don't forget the words. They out. The filthy animals quit on the new blood for the rest of the night, they say. And then some very, 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 very lame, like, stripper music plays. Like, but the thing is, is that I wouldn't even notice it, but it plays for an incessantly long time. Uh, Tony Schiavone says, actually, that it's the filthy animals' new music. And I'm like, what the fuck? They're just coming out to the ring, and what are we stalling for? And then I remember, well, they're probably stalling for the new Filthy Animals sheet entrance so they can set up the purple sheet. But then it reminds me that on the last episode for all of you, I even performed a little bit of filthy, a dirty, a nasty, that's the way we like it. And, like, I waxed poetic about how I love the Filthy Animals theme song slash entrance combo. And here they are. They all pose in the silhouette. 
and they look kind of cool, but it's like stripper, and it's just, it's not like Sandstorm, the fucking stripper song that everybody knows and loves, you know? No, how does Sandstorm go? Oh, fuck me, it's gonna bug me. It's gonna bug me a lot. Wait, 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 I remember. That's Sandstorm. Everybody knows that song because I know we're all around the same age because we're awesome podcasting people. And that was a huge hit song when I was like a freshman in college. So maybe we're not exactly the same age, but you probably uh, attempted to grind to it on a young man or lady at some point in your life. Young meaning they were appropriate for your age at the time. Uh, so let's just get that clear. It's the Filthy Animals, Tony! They're here! But before I can tell you why they're here, it's time to play Fun with Closed Captions! So yeah, it's Fun with Closed Captions. We're back. The juice gets on the stick to cut his usual juice production, and he says, according to the closed captions, and I quote, indistinct has come back to indistinct, which is pretty much perfect. And that ends this week's segment of fun with closed captions. So to summarize that first encounter, I would guess it would be uh, the English language defeats the juice uh, via clarity. Um, I guess I'd give it about three stars. Juice worked hard. The language worked hard. Yeah, they put on a good show. So Conan takes a stick from the juice and basically says that, you know, they're not afraid of anybody. So they issue an open challenge. They, they being the fil pronouns pile, the filthy animals, issue an open challenge to anyone in the New Blood, the Millionaire's Club, or the MIA. And I'm like, this could be kind of cool. Get a little four-on-four four new blood action. Maybe have a decent, you know, six, seven-minute match uh, with some high spots. Uh, but for fuck's sake, it's the MIA that answers the challenge. That's the new cadet, says Mike Denae on Major Guns. I'd say a 44 Magnum. Bobby the Brain on Major Guns. Uh, Cajun takes a stick. It says, hold it where you make it. And then the bell rings. MIA defeats the filthy animals. Via Grill in Chill. So as you know, on WCW Must Die, we spend an awful lot of personal time and investment in telling you what happened during the show. But more importantly, during the matches, we tell you what happened. So we start off, and one of the cool things that I noticed right away is that the Hip Hop Inferno is in the corner, and the Misfits all do a stinger splash. I guess it'd be the Misfits splashes. I suppose one could say they're running the train on the hip-hop Inferno, all right? Now, as the Inferno is in the corner, like, oh, man, I just got stinger splashed by four fucking dudes, there's kind of a little bit of uh, anarchy going on. The ref's distracted. Major Guns gets in the ring and hits the hip-hop with TBO, 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 
or tit-based offense by just smacking him with her bosoms. Look, I just tell you what happened. I'm not the one that told Tylene to do it. She did it. Don't blame me. For the first time in my life, I'd like to be the Disco Inferno, says Tony Schiavone. So, Major Stash eventually starts wrestling, and Tony does call him Private Stash. Now, Mike and I, Mike Heller, that is pronouns, pal, or no, uh, last names, pal, uh, theorized about this a couple episodes ago that it's long rumored that Van Hammer quit because he wanted to be a major and they made him a private. So here's the gag, guys, okay? I get a major stash is a large assortment of drugs, uh, probably marijuana because it's, you know, it's the lowest level offense, especially in 2000, uh, you know, it, it, I'm not going to get into politics, but so it's probably the least um, offensive. You know, it's not like he's got fucking Tony Montana slopes in his, uh, you know, in, in his private closet stash. OK, or his major stash in his closet. But here's the thing. If you're talking about like your weed stash, private stash is a lot more relevant because it's like, I don't know. You go to fucking Drugs R Us and the guy's like, hey, what's that in the corner? And, you know, the person working is like, oh, that's my private stash. It's not for sale. You know, whatever. I mean, just it just fucking makes sense. I don't know. I, I just don't know. Uh, stash is on the turnbuckle having himself a seat, taking a break, and the juice is in with the juice and Steiner. Well, that's pretty cool, I guess. And then, in an interesting move, uh, Private Stash, or Major Stash, puts the juice on the, on the turnbuckle himself and does a superplex. But it's the roll-a-joint delayed version! This is the only thing I've ever seen Major Stash do that has anything to do with, like, his gimmick or his name or anything like that. He doesn't last very long, but essentially he sets uh, the juice up for the superplex. He puts the arms and everything like that. But before he grabs, you know, the belt line to, you know, pull him over for the superplex, he makes a little motion, finger motion with his hands, kind of like the finger thing means the money. But I think he's trying to imply that he's rolling a marijuana cigarette. Pretty sweet variant, though. Not as good as the Kevin Nash put the cigarette out powerbomb variant, but we're getting there. Big Bill gets in. That's, uh, what's his name? The hard dick to the rest of you guys out there. And Ray starts mud hole stomping to get him to go down for the Bronco Buster. Uh, Ray gets him down. He does the, like, Bronco Buster symbol. He runs backwards and turns around. But Big, Big Dick, uh, Big Dick DeMont is standing up. So Ray says, fuck it and does a standing Bronco Buster variant. Holy shit, it's like a Disney Plus show up in here with all these goddamn variants. It's either that or like a fucking Facebook forum full of reds. Oh, the fucking COVID variants aren't real. Oh, you're just a pussy. I don't know why they sound like Bobcat Goldweight there at the end. Uh, eventually, here comes the perfect one, Sean Stasiak, to pull the rope down as Lieutenant Loco is trying to do an Irish whip to himself. And Loco flies over the top rope. And it's a DQ, grill and chill, finish. Uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a massive brawl. They're fighting all over. Uh, the MIA is losing. And holy shit, here comes Booker T. But it's a variant version called G.I. Bro. Uh, and he's here to start a feud with Sean Stasiak so they can wrestle at the Great American Bash. Lieutenant Loco is still out of it, though, even after the ring is cleared. Here comes Major Guns. She rips her shirt like she's fucking Hulk Hogan. And holy shit, she's got a hickey on the boob. Left boob hickey. Left boob hickey. I swear to God, she really does that. It's not just a gag. This is fucking, this is, this is not the real Major Guns. It's a hickey variant. Who gave her this hickey? Was it 
Tony Schiavone, Mike Tanay, fucking Ralphus. It, you know, it had some unique marks. It could have been fucking Ralphus. He probably got hungry in the middle of the night and uh, thought he was in his own room, and he found Miss Buck, if you will. Um, she's able to revive Lieutenant Loco, though, with the sixth grade CPR. She has incredible lung capacity, as Mike Tanay says, and Bobby finishes with a dynamite big lungs. She must know balloon salesman in Des Moines. Um, classic Bobby the Brain, but also pervy, so it's kind of weird. So many variants. I give this match three episodes of Johnny C and the Multiverse of Fabulousness, where we talk about pop culture variants like it is going out of style. After the match, we head to the back into the Millionaire's Club Lounge, which looks just as awesome as those, like, premier gold-level smoking lounges you see in an airport. I don't know how to get people to smoke. I'm not judging. Hell, I smoked when I was in college a lot. Uh, it's bad for you, kids. But at the same time, it's not exactly a place that I want to be. And that's what this Mainers Club lounge feels like, okay? They they give some mild applause to the MIA, uh, proving they don't give a fuck about them. But honestly, do you? Do you give a fuck about the MIA? Uh, after the celebration of light applause, Luger stands up and he goes, Man, oh, man, I'm out of here, guys. i got something to take care of. And uh, he exits the stage. Cut to the interviewing stage in the back where Mean Gene is with the MIA. Gene is visibly distracted from the bosoms of, uh, what's her name? Tylene Guns? Yeah, Tylene Guns. That's what we're going to call her from now on. Uh, Booker says, these guys know what's going on. F-U-B-A-R stands for Bishop and Russo, and you figure the rest out. Lash LaRue is a fucking pervert. He spends the entire interview looking at the chesticles of uh, Tylene Guns, and it's it's off-putting. Look, I am a heterosexual male, meaning that I'm attracted to women, okay? But holy jeez, I am not going to on camera, even if it's my character's job, because how's that going to get me over and not make me look like a giant piece of shit? So my character isn't going to be staring at the bosoms? So Lash, why are you? Fucking pervert. Uh, but Booker ends the interview by declaring all out wah, which is spelled W-A-H-H-H, which is what he would later experience at WrestleMania 19. Out to the ring comes Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea, and thank God he has a microphone because this show needs to uh, always have plenty of Hulk Hogan material to work off of. He claims he never beat Horace as a child. And this is where we have one of those weird thunder audio gas. I've hypothesized on this show that they sweeten the crowd noise, but the person who's in charge of the sweetening is either drunk at the controls or should, uh, you know, host a podcast like this one because they're just fucking around and playing with the audience expectations. Because when he says he never beat Horace as a child, the weird crowd sweetening goes, "Oh, like it's a sitcom, and the dad just told his son that he's proud of him even though he lost the basketball game. Now, why the fuck would they be disappointed that he didn't beat Horace as a child? Is that something the crowd was looking for? Um, I don't know. But Hogan claims tonight he's going to beat Horace. He's going to beat his ass. Horace is in the back watching the interview on a little TV, and he says, All right, Tori, let's go. The kidster objects. Tori tells the kidster she has to do it, and the kid has to eat a punch of Horace Hogan. Now, as Horace and Tori make their entrance... Tony Schiavone delivers this dynamite run-on. What's going on with Tori as it relates to Horace? As it relates to Billy Kidman? 
as it relates to the new blood. I just wonder what the nature of the relationship is. Tanae chimes in. Ha! The bell rings, so here comes match two. Hulk Hogan! Terry Bollea defeats Horace Hogan via eight simple rules for dating my teenage Horace. The match starts off at a frenzy pace with punches and scratches and rolling to the outside. Terry Bollea sets up a table on the outside, to which Bobby the Brain delivers this dynamite early 90s vintage brain. He abused this man as a child. He, he made him run errands, mow the lawn, take out the garbage. Abuse. Those are chores. Tanae chimes in. No, you have someone to do that for you. They're called servants. No, Tony Schiavone replies. Yeah, you know what? I actually have a few of them, but I call them wives. They're all part of the makeup of growing up and becoming a young man, Tony Schiavone retorts. And thus ends the uh, WCW Parents Council discussion on how to raise children. And it was fucking dynamite. Um, if you ever wanted to see a match that is consisted mostly of eye rakes countered with eye rakes, then folks, this is your WrestleMania main event. This match should be on repeat in your lounge uh, uh, party area 24-7. You have some guests over and like, oh, what's this? Oh, this is a, this is a vintage 2000 lot of uh, Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea, and Horace Hogan. You'll see here the match uh, is exuberated by exquisite eye-rake counters to eye-rakes. Uh, some would say it's the Mona Lisa of thunder matches. Uh, enough of uh, party hosting using WCW as your entertainment. Um, eventually, Hogan takes off his belt, as every parent is prone to do, and starts beating Horace with it. So they're really getting this parenting concept over in the match, believe it or not. I, I'm, I'm as flabbergasted as the rest of you. Hogan then goes after the dick to make sure that uh, Horace and Tori can't have themselves a time. Again, uh, trying to keep your children from having sex. Uh, they're really getting the parenting gimmick over, and I'm having a good time watching it. Uh, eventually, Horace gets back on offense and prompts uh, Tori to rise to the mat and stand on it on the apron so he can get a kiss. He does. But the kidster sees this, and he's having none of this. So he harpoons uh, Horace, uh, he being Kidman, pronouns pal, and he's, again, Kidman, pronouns pal, has mounted Horace, and he's brutally, Kidman is brutally assaulting Horace with punches. Now, this raises an interesting question. The hosts and myself on this program have tried to figure out what the true relaxing of the disqualification rule is. In our previous encounter, the perfect one, Sean Stasiak, pulled one of the rope cables down, and a sports entertainer uh, accidentally fell over that top cable because there was no top cable there, thus necessitating a disqualification ruling. So assaulting the ring is called for a disqualification, but assaulting a competitor is not. Let's see if this rule carries for the rest of the evening. But like I said, there's no DQ called. Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea, comes into the ring and hits Horace Hogan with a very weak chair shot straight to the back. Horace looks mildly discomforted and falls to the mat. Hulk Hogan then takes the kidster and beals him over the top rope as the kidster lands smack dab face first on the table at ringside, creating a nice sound.
Hollywood Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea, covers Horace Hogan for the one, two, three, and the bell rings. Tori comes in to help Horace Hogan, and Hollywood, or not Hollywood, Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea, looks appalled at this. He points at Tori while she's on the ground and kind of balls his fist and looks to the crowd for approval, like, should I do it, brother? Tori stands up. Terry Bollea grabs the back of her head, recocks the fist, looks back at the crowd for approval, does a very Looney Tunes-esque wind-up, like, like he's going to punch her, and then, oh my god, he uncocks the fist, and he gives her the park! It's a force lip lock, force lip lock. I'd rather be hit. Talk about hoof and mouth, hoof and mouth disease, Bobby the Braid Heated says. Uh, Hogan kisses Tori so passionately, even though it's against her will, he places her gently on the mat, and that is that. Now, the camera zooms in on Tori Wilson's face as she's on the mat. Her eyes are super wide, and she's laughing and giggling like she just discovered that her brush can do more than simply fix her hair. She likes it, dare I say, she loves it. Hogan does the exaggerated wipe your mouth off with the sleeve, you know, the hmm, and then looks at the camera and goes, ah, and exit Hulk Hogan. Tori is back up in the ring with very visibly hard nipples. Now, I point this out to the listening audience only to let any aspiring actors out there know that your entire body is a canvas that you could use to bring your character to life. So I give Tori Wilson kudos for giving this acting effort her all. Uh, you know, when the bell initially rang, I was going to give it one star because I was not amused. But given the post-match shenanigans and my new analysis that this is a parenting match, I'm going to give it two to three stars for aggravated lip assault. We head to the parking lot, and we are over the shoulder of a gentleman who is wearing a shirt, like a security-type shirt, and a white car pulls up, and it's Lex Luger. Now, Lex Luger sees a person standing there, you know, a human being, a person who deserves your respect your courtesy, and what have you. And Lex Luger starts talking to him like he's fucking Siri. He's like, hey, man, can I get directions to the nearest gym? And now I'm thinking about it. Maybe he's not using Siri because he's using gym as some sort of, like, code for, like, where can I find some crack? Or it's the year 2000 and Siri doesn't exist. So here's what I like about this. I'm all in favor of not over-inundating your audience with unnecessary details. So, like, if Commissioner Gordon's talking to the Batman and he's like, well, the Riddler's in Montana Studios over on Parkway, you know, the Batman just runs to the Batmobile and then he drives and, and, and the movie goes on. Gordon's not like, oh, he's in Montana Studios. Uh, you know, it's on the right side of the road on a one-way street, so you've got to actually come around from the other side and take the left. And the Batman's, like, writing this shit down on a pen and paper. So you don't want to, like, you know, make your audience get into the weeds of everyday life. But the directions he gives are, and I quote, go down here, make a right, you can't miss it. They could have scripted something a little bit more detailed for the security guard. You know, go out here, you'll be on Lincoln, take a left on King, and it's right there, you can't miss it. I mean, at least. And that's me, off the top of my fucking head, sitting here on my lunch break in a parking lot, just making shit up. I made it up. And I did it that quickly. Why don't I have a job with WWE? Make it happen, Bruce. I know you listen. But my point is, he's gone here making right. You can't miss it. Tony Schiavone goes, 
what a time he picked for a workout. And Mike fucking today goes, now? <laughs> God damn it. If anyone out there is willing to be my personal Mike Tanay, I will hire you and pay you a daily wage for you to just stand close to me and reiterate everything I say. Like if I'm in a meeting and I'm like, hey, uh, this needs to be done by Thursday, right? Can you just be like, the 24th? <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> well, we come back from commercial and thank God that it's clear and evident from the get-go that Lex Luger has found the gym. Because we, we, we are introduced to a gymnasium, if you will, a workout area. And Chucky Palumbo is on the bench. He's got his Lex flexor. He gets a couple of flexes in. And he says, one more set. Made him in style. Let's go. Let's go. Good spot on three. Good spot on three. And, you know, he's got a dude spotting him. And the camera kind of wanders over. And, uh-oh, Lexi Poo is indeed here. He scoots over to where Chucky e. P is, and he tells the extra to beat it with, like, a little hand motion. And he starts spotting Chuck. And he's like, come on, Chuck, two more. You got this. You got this. And I was like, oh, he's just here to spot the guy. I mean, that's important, you know. We need to make sure that we're safe when we improve ourselves. So good for you, Lex. Come on, you got two more. He said, When he says, come on, you got two more, Chucky goes, oh. I swear to God, it sounds like he just came. <laughs> I mean, it kind of looks like a porn anyway. I mean, it might as well. Um, so, Chucky finishes, and Lex goes, Oh, great set, man, great set. With just a few tips on the form, and then smack! He fucking beats the Lex Flexor right across his chest. F looks like it fucking hurt. So, kudos to Chuck for taking it. Now, Lex starts beating him up. And he actually delivers some dynamite one-liners, all right? He's like, you want to be a better better? Smack with the Lex Flexor. He grabs Chuck and he says, you know what they say, Chuck? No pain, no gain. And he just tosses him into a wall. Now, this wall, I don't know why these details stand out to me. There's a dry erase board on the wall. And there's a couple of equations written on this wall. Like, it's fucking Goodwill hunting. Like, someone just came down. He's like, yeah, you know, I, I came down here a couple weeks ago and threw this equation up on the wall. I just wanted to see what would happen, you know? One of them is 1 times 8 equals 55%. The other is 3 times 8 equals 65%. Now, if this is some sort of uh, mathematical language that exists only for working out, and I don't know it because I'm not in shape, then ha-ha, you can point and laugh at me. But if not, what the fuck does this mean? We continue with the beatdown. Luger does the classic put the garbage can on somebody's head spot. <laughs> and then, with the trash can still on his head, Palumbo leads him against the wall. And Lex Luger pulls a fucking, uh, he grabs a weight bar off the ground. Like he's motherfucking Donatello and he's got a bow staff. And he just starts swinging it and like beating the shit out of Chuck with it. It's fucking fantastic. He takes the trash can off and wraps like a rubber hose around him. And starts throwing him with it. Um, he grabs a weight belt. He, Lex grabs a weight belt. Pronouns, pal. And he starts slapping Palumbo with it and says, Always wear a weight belt. Throws him into a towel bin. And then he grabs a 40-pound plate, as Shivani calls it, like a 40-pound weight. And he just starts hitting Chucky in the sternum with it, which would probably kill him. Uh, one final awesome dynamite note from the package. He says, you going to work out total package style? Always drink plenty of protein. And he pours like a gross, thick, green protein shake on the main event. 
and says, hit the ha- hit the showers, Chuck. And we end that scene. Back to the parking lot. Ralphus and Norman Smiley, the jobless, if you will, are selling F-U-N-B t-shirts out of the back of their car. The best part of this skit is I'm first led to believe that they're selling, like, shitty homemade knockoffs because the t-shirt looks so awful. I I focus in a little bit more, then no, it's just the standard F-U-N-B t-shirt that looks like garbage. Uh, I love shoot things that aren't supposed to be shoot things, as Scott Keith would say. I stole that from him, so don't yell at me. Norman says, they're selling like cupcakes. And that's me trying to do a Norman Smiley accent. I don't know what his accent is, but I love it. I wish everyone sounded like that. There's a sign attached to the car that says T-shirts for sale. But it actually says T-shirts, S-H-E-R-T-S, for sale. Get her done. Indeed. Ralphus says, you know, we could get arrested for this. And Norman says, Ralphus, you want to eat? And Ralphus is like, well, yeah. And we head to commercial. I love it. Two segments, two crimes against humanity. Let's lock these fuckers up and move on with our lives. We are back in the arena now, and here comes Drunk Terry Flunk. Uh, Tony Schiavone hypothesizes that the New Blood would have an easier time getting the cruiserweight title off of him if it was sewed to his butt. And no, that's not a mistake or a flub. He called it the cruiserweight title. I get distracted here because a person in the audience has a sign that says, Finally, Thunder is back in South L.A. And I was thinking to myself, wait a minute. I thought they were in the fucking Cajun Dome in some place in Louisiana. They are not anywhere fucking close to L.A. And then I realize, oh, which I guess sums up my opinion of Louisiana. Nothing against it per se, but it's certainly not the first thing on my mind. Funk tells the cat to dance his ass down here for a shot at the hardcore title. And the crowd goes, oh, because it's sweetened and they're using weird sounds. Thank God the cat's music hits, because that tells me we are about to experience Ernest the Cat Miller, the greatest entertainer in the history of sports entertainment. And that's not a rip. I'm not ribbing you. I'm not ribbing you. Nesting once said. Now, as the cat's music hits, unfortunately, we're hearing the peacock dub. But the, they, they cut to this kid in the crowd, okay? And this kid is dancing to this song like it is fucking life to him. He is going crazy, shaking his head, swiveling his hips. This guy is having, or this guy, this kid is just, this is, this kid has reached Nirvana, okay? And I laughed at that. But his dad is fucking next to him laughing at the kid dancing. And the dad looks just like Eddie Murphy. And when you compound the fact that the dad is smile laughing and he's all teeth, just like Eddie Murphy, when he'd be like, <laughs> fuck. God, I love Eddie Murphy. If you have not seen The Golden Child, I didn't write this down. This is not part of my notes. I'm going off script, and I'm going to business for myself. I say, ah, 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 want the knife. God. Did you see uh, a little naked man running around with a $100 bill? That is uh, Eddie Murphy in The Golden Child. Fuck, I'm going to have to watch it tonight, ruining my regularly scheduled entertainment. All right, so back to professional wrestling. The cat cuts a promo at the top of the entrance ramp. 
you know, you're old, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I'm too pretty to be in a hardcore match. Terry Funk walks down the ramp towards the cat as he is cutting the promo. The cat is not done with the promo, but Terry Funk stops right next to him and has the courtesy to allow the cat to stop his promo. When the cat lowers the microphone to indicate the promo is done, Funk hits him with his own microphone. So, I don't know if this is, like, exposing the business, as we say on the interwebs, but, like, why not just hit him when you get there? I mean, I, I don't know. It just, I don't care. Like, I really don't care. I really don't, I, I don't care. But I kind of care, I guess. So, whatever. Anyway, when he hits him with the, when Funk hits him with the microphone, the bell rings. So, here we are for match number three. Terry Funk defeats the cat versus she's gonna be somebody's only light gonna shine tonight so we start with some ramp stuff <laughs> hey cat funker get over here hey it's kevin nash in case you didn't know hey you got a hardcore match tonight i saw on the run sheet Why you guys do some ramp stuff now hold on you might not be into it at first but once you get started it's a pretty good time they quickly work their way backstage, and uh, Funk takes a spill or something like that. The cat spikes the camera and yells, I'm a three-time karate champion! And then Funk just <laughs> smacks it with a trash can lid that comes into frame. I love action that comes into the frame when you're not expecting it. Funk hits the cat with a 1998-style laptop. Uh, it's very stiff. It makes a very loud smack. It has no give, and it sounded like the most painful thing I've heard all day. Uh, Shivani hypothesizes that the laptop cost $3,500. A quick Google search reveals that a top-end MacBook Pro costs $2,000 today. And considering that that MacBook Pro could possibly make all of your decisions for you and run your life, and the 1998 laptop was $3,500 and could maybe, maybe calculate a mathematical problem with more than one sign, I'm going to give the edge to today's economy. Despite the overwhelming cost of everything else, apparently. They do some standard trash-talking shit, and they're just walking through the backstage area. Um, the cat smacks uh, Funk with a giant bag of popcorn, which always pops me. <laughs> I didn't even mean it. It just like, it pops, popcorn. The cat, the cat slips on some soda. The brain says, it looks like Knox's living room. Eventually, they find a garage door. Uh, the cat decapitates Terry Funk with it. They make their way to the outside. Uh, Funk is wandering around like the drunk that he is. Ernest the Cat Miller finds a rake. And I, if you thought fucking Lex Luger was Donatello earlier, then the cat is fucking Darth Maul. Because he does some shit with this rake. He spins it and flips it like he's fucking Darth Maul, and then slashes the fingers of the rake across Funk's face. All the stars are for that alone, practically. But then Bobby the Brain with the dynamite, talk about raking the eyes! Uh, they're, they continue to fight in the parking lot, and uh-oh, wouldn't you know it, they make their way to the makeshift T-shirt stand uh, commandeered by Ralphus and Norman Smiley. <laughs> Norman goes, Funk! Cat! What are you doing? This is my business! 
And Funk has a chair and, like, shoes him away. And then Ralphus goes, Not my car, please! Not my car! And Funk straight up starts playing the Street Fighter 2 beat up the car game and commits vehicular assault, busting out all the windows, to which Bobby indicates he's doing about $18 worth of damage. The sports entertainers make their way to the roof. The cat throws Funk off of the roof, gets in Norman's face, and Norman goes, Hey, cat, you want to buy a shirt? And the cat, like, tosses him and turns his back. Norman, with a chair, smacks Ernest the Cat Miller in the back. He falls into the trunk and starts convulsing. Trunk, or trunk, fuck, falls into the trunk on top of the cat. One, two, three. Funk's feet are hanging out and dangling over the trunk. Like, he's the Wicked Witch of the whatever direction. And Heenan says something like, I used to hang out in the back of a car, but it wasn't anything like that. <laughs> Hence my, he's gonna be somebody's only light, which is the song they play in Fast Times at Ridgemont High whenever the underage girl fucks somebody. Oh, goodness gracious. This gets four karate championships from me. It's a fucking blast. And coming up, Mike Awesome in some sort of stretcher match. And uh, as he's walking down the hallway with the stretcher, boy, is he struggling keeping this thing up. Which kind of describes uh, my evenings, if you really think about it. hey But now the program continues, resuming from its commercial break. And we are back in the parking lot where Norman Smiley and Ralphus are trying to reestablish uh, the ability to sell goods and commodities. Uh, from the trunk of the Ralphus Mobile. Uh, a nice young gentleman in a white shirt arrives, and, oh, no, it's the fuzz, Tony. <laughs> Wait, Scott Hudson's not even on this show. That's okay. Have you guys ever noticed how much fun it is to say Tony after you say something ridiculous? Like, your shoe's untied, Tony. Or, have any plans for the weekend, Tony? <laughs> I don't know. But this guy's a cop. And uh, he arrests the two gentlemen in the parking lot. Uh, Ralphus, for indecent exposure uh, because of his ass crack hanging out. And Norman, for bootlegging. I, I, I don't know if this is actually a thing in Louisiana. Perhaps uh, the host of the Ruthlessly Aggressive podcast, Jake, can let us know if it is truly indeed still illegal to bootleg in Louisiana. Um, <laughs> we cut back to the arena. And... <laughs> Mike Tanay says, you know, guys, I think that's the first time anyone has ever been arrested for showing crack. This is followed by four seconds of uncomfortable silence. I clocked it in. Thank goodness here comes Mike Awesome, and it looks like an ambulance has arrived next to Thunder Vision during the break as well. He's on the stick, and he says, I crippled Canyon, and I threw him out the cage. He did that, says Tanay. He announces to one and all that he's fighting DDP at the Great American Bash in, as he puts it, an ambulance match. Uh, he doesn't even have a match scheduled for tonight, though. Uh, I guess he booked the ambulance and rented the stretcher all on his own. And he makes a call out, as fucking Mike Tanay says. And wouldn't you know it, we hear the sweet, sweet sirens solidifying Scott Steiner has stormed on the scene. Not bad. Anyways, Mike Tanay said, Look out, guys! The loose cannon is on the loose! 
This is <laughs> this is followed by seven seconds of silence. I timed it. And as a matter of fact, Tanay has to break the silence himself by talking about uh, like Madeja and Shakira, I think. Big Papa Pump is on the mic. He calls Mike Awesome Boy twice. He then says, Now I'm not a part of the New Bloods. I'm not a part of the Millionaires Club. I'm all the Alliance. This is my freaks. Nationwide. He's a loner. That's <laughs> Mike today. He calls it an ambulance. Can someone fucking teach these people how to say ambulance? The bell rings. Match four begins. Scott Steiner defeats CK Mike Awesome via This brings cheers to my eyes. Steiner starts with belly to belly, followed by some push-ups. Mike Awesome runs away. He grabs a chair, and out of anger, he tosses it into the ring casually. Steiner makes the catch, and he's out, Tony! Actually, Steiner does catch it straight up. Steiner looks really pissed here, and Awesome is kind of over by the Thunder announce table, and Scott just throws it full fucking strength. It takes a real friendly bounce, like it wants to go into the crowd over or over to the table itself. Uh, it seems dangerously close to a lawsuit of some sort as well. Tony Schiavone says to Bobby the Brain, Are you okay? <laughs> to which the Brain retorts, Well, I had to jump in front of this woman and save her, but I'm fine. Signer's on the offense, and he hits the flex bow. You know that elbow where he flexes? Why has no one ever called it that? Tony Schiavone, regarding Scott Steiner, says, He's a man with absolutely no friends. Now, Bobby the Brain actually retorts into a natural retort. I guess that's why they call it naturally torts into a retort. Fuck it, I don't care. He makes sense and he says, well, he doesn't want any, Tony. <laughs> and fucking Mike today says, that's just the way he likes it. Which is the exact same fucking thing that Bobby the Brain just said. It's cool, though. I like Mike today. He's a good dude. Um, awesome sets up Steiner for an awesome bomb. It's countered. Into a Steiner recliner. Nothing is finer. Uh, wait a minute, though. That sounds like a drum solo. Listen to the music, says Mike Tanay. Okay, so I thought I could roll my and make the drum sounds. I can't, so fuck you. Russo and Bishop Security is in the back guarding the door. The door opens, and it's Tankberg. My God, the intensity, the air punches, the snot, the face smacking, the Kmart shorts. Steiner is on the ramp patiently awaiting uh, Tankberg's arrival. I don't know where Mike Awesome is at this point, And to be honest, nobody really gives a shit because they draw no attention to it. Uh, it's taking Tank so long to get to the go position. You can actually see him sprint to the curtain uh, on Thunder Vision at the end, after it's taking too long. I don't really know any other way to describe it, except that it's funny. Um, fucking R&B Security and Tankberg make their arrival. Bobby the Brain says, There's a man! <laughs> My God, the pyrotechnics. Tank has two sparklers. He, like, puts them close to his nose and takes a big sniff and inhales a little bit of smoke. It's so funny. Uh, they run towards one another on the ramp. Fight! And there is Rick Steiner, 
pounding his own brother, Tony Schiavone says, It's a trap! My tenets. I can't even with the name. I can't even. Uh, Tank Abbott throws the uh, KO right hook to Steiner, and Steiner is down. But wait! That sounds like Goldberg's engine! The fucking Goldberg engine starts revving, but it's it's interesting, though, because it doesn't come across on the audio channels. It's like actual diegetic sound. And there's the Transformer in the building, Tony! Because the fucking Goldberg truck emerges from the other side where the ambulance isn't. And straight-up face-offs with Rick Steiner and Tank Abbott on the ramp. They have themselves a Mexican standoff. It's real, folks. It's happening. The announcers claim that they were able to catch a glimpse of Goldberg behind the windshield. I vehemently disagree. Um, Scott Steiner comes up from behind and tosses Rick and Tank onto the hood of the truck. The truck then slowly and gingerly backs out of view. Mike Awesome sees what Steiner's just done, and he starts hightailing it to the ambulance with Scott in pursuit. Awesome decides, fuck it. He jumps into the ambulance, into the driver's seat. He's behind the wheel and starts to drive away. The bell rings. Awesome has decided to throw in the towel. He has truly made my sacrifice. What a fucking shit show. I give this match four hours of awkward silence at the Tanay house after Mike tells Karen it's not her, it's him. Coming up next, previously recorded from a hospital bed, Mike Tanay interviews what appears to be Chris Canyon's nipples. We return from a brief intermission to make sales, and the new blood is falling apart at the seams. The only thing they can seem to agree upon is the fact that it's all the franchise's fault. We cut now to a very sad scene. A hospital room where a young Chris Canyon sits in his halo, somewhat reminiscent of the Master Chief, but not nearly as green or cool. And he's joined by Mike Tanay for this interview. I have to say there's something very off-putting about this scene. And from the get-go, I'm putting this out there. I don't know if it's true or not, but I believe that this was done in front of a fucking green screen. There is something about where, like, the, the lines touch between human and background. I don't know. I can't back it up. It's probably not, because I doubt they had the money for green screen technology. Um, well, not that it was, I don't know if it's expensive or not, but I just can't see these guys putting forth the effort. But man, did it look like a green screen. So, Canyon basically says, before the accident, he thought about wrestling every day. And now, he doesn't think about wrestling anymore. Yes, that is me doing a Chris Canyon impression. I don't know if it's good or not. You tell me. Uh, the doctor say it's not when I walk, or if, and that's real hard, spelled H-A-H-T-I, Zoom. Now, today he starts to take his job really seriously, like he's a real fucking reporter. And he's like, what would possess you to get physically involved in that cage match? And Canyon's all like, well, they helped Bob because, you know, DDP's wife had left him, and he couldn't let any more bad things happen to him. And he doesn't even blame Mike Austin. He knew the risks going up there. So here's 
what's weird about this? Canyon's not pissed at Mike Awesome because Canyon's like, well, them's the bricks, you know. You climb a cage. Uh, I mean, I think you're taking the risk that something could happen to the cage, but you're basically signing off on you are uh, complicit in the act of being thrown off this cage at any moment, uh, regardless of uh, the contractual status of your obligation to this cage. I don't know. It's weird. Of course, we all know that Canyon's going to turn heel, so he's just maybe laying subtle groundwork here. Uh, Tanae's like, I read that you credit Diamond Dallas Page with your career. But, Chris, I have to ask you, how does it feel knowing DDP can walk and you can't? And I'm like, Jesus, Mike, that's a fucking low blow. Canyon's like, DDP calls two or three times a day. You know, DDP taught me to be a survivor. I'll survive this one. I just hope he can. And honestly, not too bad. Subtlety, I like it. I'm going to allow it. Back to the new blood classroom, if you will, and everyone is still arguing. The franchise is trying desperately to get a hold of this classroom. But much like any other regular substitute teacher out there, this guy gets no respect. It's like there's some sort of secret pact between all school-aged children to uh, be a dick to the substitute teacher. How do I reach these kids, you must be thinking. You know, thinking of talking about substitute teachers, throwing this out there into the North-South Connection uh, zeitgeist, did anyone else think that Mr. Bowdy's little brother Rod looked like the Rocket King Owen Hart? For years, I would actually refer to him as Owen Hart. Someone would be like, uh, you know, you want to you say about it? I'm like, yeah, I think the Owen Hart episode's on, or... Ah, the Owen Hart episode of Save by the Bell was on last night. I fucking love that one. It's a real thing. Dude looks just like him. Um, I don't know. One of my Johnny C. childhood memories just popping up for you. Um, now, the franchise's phone starts ringing, although there's no evidence of this fact, except that he pulls out a very 2000 flip cell phone out of his pocket. He's like, oh, hold on, guys. I got a call. I got a call. And then franchise does some classic one-side uh, of the phone acting. All right. Uh, now, I wrote down verbatim what you experienced, so you don't have to go back and watch it yourself. <laughs> Let me get my franchise voice. <laughs> Hello. Chronic. You want a three-way dance with... That was Stu Hulk Hogan. You want a three-way dance with me tonight? You jackasses got more muscles between those ears than I thought. Listen to this sound of kissing my ass. And then he hangs up. The new blood all laugh and franchise is like, ha ha, they're on my side. We're having a good time laughing at Chronic together. But then the new bloods start to bail on him and walk away, exiting the room in a single pile of line. And franchise is like, oh, come on, guys, you gotta help me. Chronic's coming. Ray Mysterio, unmasked, is the last guy to leave the room. And he, he at least offers the franchise a hand so he can do, they can do like a sweet five, like low five, mid five handshake that I believe the Filthy Animals were probably masters of. But Ryder's franchise goes to make impact for his side of the commitment to the uh, high-five shake scenario. Ray retracts and redacts the offer right at the last second and just runs away. <laughs> oh, fuck you, franchise. I hate you. Now, after the glorious one-sided handshake attempt, we do cut the commercial. When we come back, we're still in the New Blood locker room, but it's previously recorded footage, as the moments-ago footer lets us know. It's Shane Douglas, all by his lonesome, and Chronic, 
bursts into the room by kicking the door open. Shane Douglas's big defense against this moment is to slide a chair in front of them. So I talk a lot of shit about the franchise on this program, and I think it would be kind of obvious that uh, this is not a good plan. However, I'm going to take the opposite approach. I think the franchise character is actually showing that he's a pretty intelligent dude by uh, attempting to slide this chair in front of Chronic. And here's why, okay? I think, much like the franchise character probably does, that if there are any two dumbasses in the world that are going to fall for, like, Looney Tunes cartoon slash rules, it's going to be Chronic, okay? So this is like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Chronic would kick over the door, bust in running fast, and trip over the chair, probably with a sound effect like, woo, 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 and like slide into the wall or something like that. And the French guy, French guy, the French guys, dude, the French guys could ha-ha, just like run away, and, and that's the end of that. So kudos to the franchise and uh, for recognizing the stupidity of the Chronics. However, this is the real world. And the, and the chronic just beats the shit out of him. They throw him against the door. They start dragging him around the backstage area. We cut to live scenes, and the chronic is dragging the franchise to the ring uh, from the entranceway. The, uh, the the chronic tosses the franchise in the ring, and the bell rings. So holy fuck, it's match number five. Brian Clark defeats Brian Adams and the franchise Shane Douglas. Via another brick in the wall. Now, right away, if you Google the results of this show, I think that the record book is going to disagree with my assessment of how this match ended, okay? But I'd like to make something very clear. According to the one-sided phone call that we heard, Chronic challenged the franchise to a triple threat match. Not a handicap match, not a two-on-one match, not an unbalanced match, not a tipped scales match, okay? Have I made the point? A triple threat. As if the match couldn't get any sillier from the get-go, Mike Tanay Tanay's himself. Look at the verb, Tanay's, okay? <laughs> so, he says... Recall, the franchise's partner, Buff Bagwell, has been suspended for 30 days. He's all alone. <laughs> so he, he fucking reiterates his own shit. God damn you, Mike, today. I noticed a 4Wrestle.com sign in the crowd. I think this is one of the websites I used to go to. Um, so if you're still in business, cheap plug for you. Shane digs into his tights and reveals he has the power of the punch. But it gets him absolutely nowhere because the chronic is solely in control. Brian Clark slowly hits a meltdown. Brian Adams picks up the franchise and slowly hits a TKO. They somehow get the franchise out of the ring, and the franchise comes to seize the tag team title belts and starts to run. As Shane runs up the ramp, uh, the frame, the camera has the franchise dead center in frame. And as he starts to run towards the right of the frame, which would be up the ramp towards the locker room, the camera uh, turns right with him. Okay, so this is all shot very well. 
as the Thunder Vision comes into view, um, <laughs> a table, a full horizontally held table, runs into the frame and tackles Shane Douglas. Now, the way this is shot, it looks like the table is has gained sentience and is just running down the aisle on its own, and it's fucking glorious. In reality, uh, the wall is holding this table like it's a barrier slash clothesliner, okay? The wall sets up this table, choke slams the franchise through it, picks up the franchise, tosses him into the ring in a spot that calls for Chronic, to catch the franchise. They, however, botch it and absolutely drop him, and he has to take a dangerous bump in the ring. They pick up the, the, the chronic pronouns, pal. Uh, they set the franchise up for the high times. They slam him, thus indicating a complete high time scenario. Brian Clark makes the cover. The ref counts one, two, three, thus proving... Once and for all, that Brian Clark individually is the winner of this match. And kudos to Brian Adams for not uh, belaying the point and letting Adam Baum just have this one. You know, a little something for the effort, if you will. I give this match one sentient table. Uh, I should probably also point out the announcers are confused by this. Uh, well, not so much confused by the wall helping Chronic because as Noted in previous episode, the franchise bailed on the wall in a match against Chronic on Monday, but it's more evidence that the new blood is indeed falling apart and a substitute teacher the franchise is not getting the job done. We get a sweet, like, lightning strike graphic that says, next! And I'm like, oh, fuck, Thor, Love, and Thunder! Are we, are we gonna, no, no, it's just fucking Tommy Bahama. It is Tommy Bahama, Ric Flair, heading to the ring, and in a glorious moment, he gives finger guns of approval to two unseen individuals before we actually head to the commercial. Back from commercial, and the nature boy is making his way down to the ring. There are actually lots of Ric Flair chants. Apparently, Cajun country is also Flair country. They start a 15 times chant. Kudos to this crowd for being informed. That seems like a very modern thing being keyed in to the amount of times that the person's won the title. And uh, so I, I give this crowd a little bit of credit. Good on them. This is a thunder moment, says Mike Tanay. <laughs> now, uh, Mike Tanay makes this, this stupid comment, but he actually has no idea how right he actually is. Flair grabs the mic and says, I never dreamed this would happen again. And it happened last night. I, I mean, Monday night. <laughs> So right away, Flair fucks up the fact that it's supposed to be Wednesday uh, and it's actually Tuesday. He does put over Jarrett doing that old school thing of like, regardless of face heel alignment, like put over or say something nice about the guy that you beat for the championship uh, because that makes the belt and the person you beat look stronger, therefore making you look stronger. So it's a nice way to subtly put over someone else by really putting yourself more over. A very sleazy 80s tactic indeed upon further review. He got lucky, but he still has the belt. Now it's time to get his personal life taken care of. Woo! 22, later, 22 years later, I wonder if he's ever accomplished this goal. Now he says, I want to give the world my take on Vince Russo. And this is not a crack on the Italians. 
When he indicates that he's not making fun of an entire group of individuals, I immediately had to pause the feed and take a deep breath. I had no idea what was about to happen, and I was not disappointed. I would also like to point out that anything that I say in this next segment is simply repeating what Ric Flair said when performing the character Ric Flair, not your dad. So don't blame me. Blame him. He proceeds to talk about how Vince Russo probably grew up in New York watching Bruno San Martino as the WWWF champion. And he kind of starts to relate how Vince Russo's childhood made him the man that he is today. And when he talks about Vince Russo's childhood, uh, he, you, he, he does this in a voice that I could only describe as a very happy man in a chef's hat making a pizza in a very exaggerated, sing-songy type of way. And so he says, I bet to your dad he bought to you the cable, the TBS. And the Russo grew up wanted to be the Ric Flair, and not the Bruno San Martino. And he insinuates that when his parents found out that he was into Flair, instead of being into Bruno San Martino, uh, that they freaked out. He hypothesizes a young Vince Russo probably had a conversation with his parents that went something like this. Papa, I want to be just like him. Ooh. Now, Ric Flair starts to apply his Chef Boyardee impression to Vince Russo's parents. We all know from historical documentation and film strips that we can view that taking shots at the Batman's parents is never a good idea. This will not end well. Thomas and Martha Russo are innocents about to be struck down by these verbal bullets of the nature boy. You reap what you sow, Mr. Flair. Anything that comes your way is well-deserved. Russo's mom most likely said to him, Oh, Vinny, this is a good Catholic family. You got to be the nature boy. He's making it personal. <laughs> Mike today. Oh, please, Daddy, let them be the nature boy. Oh, no. No, is what uh, Papa Russo said. So now that Vinny Rue is all grown up, Ric Flair believes he's taking it out on him uh, by using his son. But... Regardless of how much money or power you gain in WCW, Vince Russo, uh, you're still uh, just a kid uh, that wants to be uh, the nature boy. He does his limo-riding jet-flying shtick, but it's a variant because he adds two other things that he is at the end. He's the guy that kissed all the girls in the neighborhood and made them cry. Woo! I don't know. I don't know what that implies. He's like, look at this, Jack! And he fucking puts the WCW championship in front of his crotch and starts thrusting like he's goddamn Happy Gilmore. <laughs> which, which, while is funny, I absolutely believe that there is one person who suffers from HGD, Happy Gilmore disease, uh, where you, any phallic object, you're forced to put it between your legs and thrust before you can get on with your day. It's like a tick. And I say that as a person who has Tourette's, has ticks, so don't come shooting on me, okay? Uh, this is one thing I'm allowed to talk about. 
uh, based on uh, the rules of popular culture. But uh, can you just imagine, like, Ric Flair? Like, he has a fucking 60-minute marathon match, and someone hands him a Gatorade bottle, like, great match, man, you're the champ. And before he can take a drink, knowing that it will, like, get him back to some state of, like, being able to, to, to live because he desperately needs these fluids. He has to take the Gatorade bottle and have you kill more thrust before he can take a drink. <laughs> what a fucking guy he is, man. Uh, so, he said something like, the gold is here with the nature boy. And Vince Russo is just trying to live through David Flair. He starts to wax poetic on this, but then, all of a sudden, Cowboy! Oh, with the top leg back in the sunshine shining. Jeff Jarrett is here, and he calls Ric Flair a deadbeat dad. He then runs into the ring and fight. Jeff Jarrett and Nature Boy Tommy Bahama are beating the shit out of one another. All of a sudden, here comes Crowbar, David Flair, and that Jezebel, the cruiserweight champion, Daphne. And there's a uneven brawl as these three evil individuals and their dastardly valet take advantage of the Tommy Bahama boy. After all of this nonsense uh, with uh, a Mr. Russo and a Mrs. Russo, this ridiculous dick thrusting with the championship belt, the fucking four horsemen theme song hits. I do love if you, like, stick with the Horseman song long enough, you get to the sweet. Anyway, Arn fucking Anderson is here, and he has a pipe. He comes into the ring a swinging like a madman, and the heels all scatter like cockroaches again. And I do notice here that David Flair at least has his sweet UK Tour Nitro t-shirt back, and that makes me happy. Arn Anderson grabs the stick. The camera gets a little bit closer in on Anderson, and I notice that he does not have a pipe, as hypothesized by not only myself and the announce team. He has a fucking log, okay? Like, now, if you were going to tell me someone on this WCW roster who's out in the forest chopping down trees before the show started, I would believe that it was Arn Anderson, okay? So I, I'm okay with him having this log. But where did he get it? Where did he get it? At the Cajun Dome. I don't know. But it's pretty cool. Now, I'm super excited to hear Arn cut a promo. But it starts off kind of awkward because he tells all the women's groups out there that they're not going to like what he's about to say. And I'm like, oh, fucking hell. We alienated Italian-American immigrants from the 1950s Godfather style of New York. Now, uh, women's groups are on the chopping block. What could Arn Anderson possibly say? He tells some contrived story about not stopping his son from, like, injuring himself while playing with fire and just letting it happen. And then, right before his kid would hurt himself, Anderson says that he would uh, stop the kid from getting burned and instead tear his son's ass up so he learns a lesson. I think Arn might be drunk, folks. And I'm not saying that to throw shade at a man's character. For Christ's sakes, he's like at least 40, I think. 
He's allowed to have a drink. All right. I don't care that he's drunk. But there's a little bit of evidence here that makes me think he is. Um, his promo continues, and it's unintelligible. I would encourage everyone to go back and see for yourself if you can decipher. It ends basically with Arn Anderson booking himself and Ric Flair in some sort of tag team scenario that isn't exactly um, well described. But the announcers get pumped that tonight we're going to see the horsemen in action together. Mike Tanay ends the segment by telling us that those were words from the heart. Bobby, the brain, hypothesizes that those were words straight from his guts. I'm going to disagree with both. I think the promo came from his liver. We cut to the backstage area, and we're in a little closet that's full of green smoke. And uh, Ian is here with a sting mask and a lighter. He's ready to see if they can walk their talk. You know, because they, they've talked talk now, can they walk the walk? And he lights the sting mask on fire and says, I'm ready to take you to hell, sting. And uh, we head to a commercial. We're back from commercial, and Sting is already in the ring with a jobber entrance. He's got the stick, and he tells Vampiro he's really close to snapping and blowing a gasket. Then he pulls a Mick Foley, and he says, I'm going to take you out right here in Louisiana. I swear to God, he says, the only thing that's missing is the giggle and the thumbs up. But then we hear the docile tones of Ian. He's come out to the entranceway, and he, too, has a microphone. He says, hey, Steve, Stinger. And today he goes, he just called him Steve. What? He says, Vampiro says, pronouns, pal. Vamp says, last night in the cage. <laughs> That's the second segment in a row where they've referred to last night's events, even though it's supposed to be Wednesday. He said, Vampiro says that Sting left him hanging. So apparently, as I hypothesized in the last episode, Vampiro was unable to climax due to lack of being beaten with a baseball bat. Vampiro says, you just don't got the balls to cross the line and finish the job. I would have shattered you into pieces, Sting. Maybe, Sting, maybe you want to be like me. So let me tell you what's going to happen. At the American Bash, yes, he calls it the American Bash, which I kind of want to visit an alternate timeline where there is an American Bash pay-per-view just for the fuck of it. They're going to have an Inferno match, which I believe is a registered trademark of World Wrestling Federation Entertainment Incorporated, but at this point, who gives a fuck? To win, you've got a light-year opponent on fire, Steve. Steve retorts to Ian, you're psycho, you psycho bonehead. That's not happening. We are going to torch one another. Well, Steve, you don't have a choice. Now, as Ian tells Steve he has no choice in the matter, the camera zooms in on Ian's face. And we sit there for 11 seconds. I know this because I timed it. We cut back to Sting, who is still in the ring. And about one-fourth of the top rope is on fire. And you can actually see a guy with a little torch in the bottom of the frame attempting to set the other ropes ablaze. Now, some of the ropes do catch on fire, and somehow Tanae pulls a Tanae 
on an image. And he simply reiterates what we can clearly see by stating, the ring ropes are on fire. <laughs> At this moment, Sting does an absolutely perfect disgruntled flipping of his bat. Like you would see in a fucking movie. He's just like, whoop, and tosses it. It flips perfectly, it lands perfectly, and Sting's mannerisms are absolutely on point. I can tell that those acting classes are really starting to pay off. We uh, somehow find a way to cut back to Ian again, his face, for exactly 13 seconds. And these are the longest 13 seconds of Ian's life. Because I can see in his face, he can feel his career just absolutely falling apart right before his very eyes. What is it they don't want us to see? If they're going to do a stunt like this, wouldn't they want us to watch the world burn, as Alfred once hypothesized? We cut back to the ring, and the ropes are technically on fire in piecemeal. It's like when a kid first starts to get facial hair and it's just all over the place. You might have a little section here and then a small tiny section of the bottom rope is also on fire. I would say overall, like 12% of the ropes are on fire. And I might add they're the wimpiest flames I've ever seen. This is the greatest symbolism in the history of our sport. WCW must die a night's. Like, this entire attempted stunt, when put together, uh, is WCW 2000 in a nutshell. It's mind games, says Tony Schiavone. Scary mind games, <laughs> reiterates Mike today. To put over, as this segment ends, how much of the ring is not actually on fire, Sting climbs to the top turnbuckle and does his little Rufio rooster yell, you know, the ah! Rufio! Rufio is indeed the shit. He exits the ring and casually strolls right into a commercial break. This entire Steve and Ian saga continues to be the best thing I've ever seen. Uh, we head back to the New Blood classroom, and Jeff Jarrett and the franchise are trying to pass off the failures of the evening onto one another. Uh, Shane tells Jarrett that he can fix it just by beating the shit out of Ric Flair and Arn Anderson. Ah! And the New Bloods are all going to be waiting in the school bus. When Jeff Jarrett is done, he should come out and join us, and we're getting the hell out of Dodge. Chosen one, bring it home for us. A nice uh, Dead Poet Society-style inspirational speech there from our teacher. We head back to the ring. David Flair's music and his video are playing. And then, for some reason, it stops, and Rick's video and music start playing. Rick comes down for the match. And Tony Schiavone indicates that on Monday night, Rick Flair made history by not only becoming World Heavyweight Champion for the 15th time, but by becoming the first man to win the world title wearing street clothes. So I ask to you, fans, what is the legal definition of street clothes? How was this record determined? Like, if someone wrestled, you know, I, I can't even turn this into shtick. The fact that he fucking verbalized it is enough. Moving along... We cut to the back where David, Daphne, and Crowbar have Arn Anderson down on the ground and they're beating the shit out of him. It comes into view on Thunder Vision so Rick can see it. And Rick t 
takes off at what I would mm, nicely call mall walking speed towards the back. But holy shit, Jeff Jarrett is here and he attacks Rick. They brawl to the ring. They enter the ring and a bell rings. Match number six. I, I have no fucking idea. Okay. I have no idea what match happens here. Uh, I guess we'll have to figure out what happened and go through it at the end. So Crowbar and David join the fray. It's a heel beatdown. You've seen it a thousand times. David what applies what I would barely call the figure four leg lock. It's one of the worst I've ever seen. It's rock sharpshooter levels. When all of a sudden, oh, don't turn your back on the stand stand. You might wind up in a body bag. You take the chances with a bad boys of wrestling. Yeah, I skipped over somebody who gives a fuck. Um, as Nash is walking to the ring, everyone is distracted in the ring, okay? And David Flair breaks the figure four. Ric Flair cinches in a small package on Daphne. <laughs> One, two, three. It's anarchy! Anarchy! Ric Flair puts Daphne in the figure four. Nash gets hit with a chair by Jared, completely no-sells it, and the heels bail, as does Kevin Nash. Now, in a moment of interestingness, Flair actually goes to leave, and he clearly has a problem. His acting is too good and on point to indicate that this is a wrestling angle, and he asks Charles Robinson for help and does indeed collapse on the uh, ramp trying to leave. Now, I did a little bit of research into this, and it looks like this was a legitimate inner ear problem that Flair was having. Uh, that dead, that, you know, the, the, the vertigo strikes again to the Nature Boy, as has been well documented on many programs here on the North South Connection Podcast Network. Uh, I believe it's what I learned this on, uh, No Holds Barred. It's why, uh, Flair dropped the belt to heart was a vertigo style type deal. So, uh, you know, here we are again. Uh, the, 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 the past becomes the present, the present becomes the future, and um, that's it. That doesn't make any sense, but neither does this episode of WCW Must Die. Um, so I guess we could summarize this uh, like we usually do up top of matches. Ric Flair defeats Daphne via question mark? Like, I have no fucking idea. I don't know what this was, but I have given it the full five Johnny C stars. You want to talk clusterfucks? This is this is the WrestleMania moment of clusterfucks, and I'm absolutely here for it. We cut back to the New Blood school bus. It's the franchise, the substitute teacher, the dean, the man who has let the world of the New Blood fall apart in one evening. Says, "Come on, chosen one." He goes to check his watch, but remembers he isn't wearing one. Jarrett arrives, and they hop on the bus. Shane takes the wheel, shuts the bus door, and it makes that little creaking bus door sound. Um, the camera lingers on the bus as it's revealed that the bus has been spray-painted in red, and it says, New Blood, the time is now. So did Cena do this? You can't see me, but time is now, now, with the first time, with the sun, and no, no. You can't see me, the time is in case you forgot and fell off. Knock the shell off the franchise. You're not a soldier. And I say under you fighting. Because I'm screaming on you jumps like a thunder and lightning. Is anyone still here? 
So this is so awkward because the camera lingers on the school bus as the announcers retell the evening story. They reiterate that Terry Volea is indeed the key master and wields the keyblade. Uh, and the new blood can't possibly start this bus. Here comes Big Sexy. He's ready to sexecute, but he looks around and there is no one to sexecute. But all of a sudden, Chris Candido emerges from the little garage area that Nash just exited. I don't know what the fuck this is. I don't know if he was just, like, trying to leave for the night and got caught on camera, but they're really close to one another. Like, Nash should arguably lunge at Candido and murder him, but he just kind of does, like, a stutter step, like, what's up? Like a, like a, you know, like a, and uh, Candido flinches and runs away. <laughs> I, I don't know. The rest of the new, uh, the Millionaire's Club emerged from the garage. They work together, and through the power of teamwork, and a late addition, as Terry Funk runs in at the end, they tip the fucking school bus over on its side, and it seems, indeed, like school's out for thunder! Because the copyright logo emerges, and that's the end of our episode. <laughs> wow. So this episode was amazing. WCW Thunder continues to be a glorious gem of God-smacked goobers, okay? Like, this is just awesome. Clearly, WCW puts all their eggs in a nitro basket, and Thunder just gets the leftovers. It was awesome. I um, I mean, no, it was p- fucking pathetic in a, 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 a perfect example of how to, you know, kill your, your professional wrestling company. But isn't that what we're here for? You know, we know the ending to this story. We know WCW must die. I think that's why we called the show that. But it's so much fun to watch it happen live before our very eyes. So, you know, these these professional sports entertainers did teach us a good lesson about our society, though, okay? So I get that we often don't want to be told what to do. You know, a perfect example of that is, like, you know, kids that don't want to be in school. They're bored. You know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, they kind of need that structure. It's helpful in the end. Uh, you know, when the teacher's away, the mice will play or whatever. You know, and this is this is evidence to that. And the Millionaires Club showed what happens when, you know, kids put aside their differences and work together and really sort of forge their own identity. It's a great message that all of us can get behind. And the best way I can reiterate that to all of you is to show you what the kids of WCW High taught me about my own life. Dear Mr. Russo, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Wednesday watching Thunder for whatever it was we did wrong. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. You see us as you want to see us, in the simplest terms, in the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a podcaster, a daddy dude, a salesman, a teacher, a restater. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, the Brunch Association.